Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are very, very plugged in with our kids in terms of world events, and we watch the news together as a family every single night. There are always lots of questions, and we always press pause on the news and say, okay, let's discuss this. When it comes to watching the news, we all know it usually isn't good. But this week, sadly, is a lot tougher than others. Over the weekend, President Biden ordered American flags to be flown at half-staff in honor of the victims of the mass shooting in Monterey Park, California. The attack left 11 dead and injured nine others as of this recording. The suspect was a 72-year-old Asian man who died from what appears to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Monterey Park is a suburb of Los Angeles and is 65% Asian, according to the U.S. Census. The victims had gathered to celebrate the Chinese New Year. It is a heartbreaking story, but unfortunately, not a new one in our country. We now have had 40 mass shootings thus far in 2023 alone, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Monterey Park was the deadliest mass shooting since a gunman murdered 19 elementary school students and two teachers in Evaldi, Texas last May. I remember being a young newspaper reporter when the Columbine shooting left 12 students and one teacher dead back in 1999. Then, it felt as if the entire world had stopped. Today, we are more desensitized to gun violence as the politics of it all has left many of us languishing somewhere between helplessness and hopelessness. Thoughts and prayers used to be a kind gesture. Now, it feels like the punchline to a cruel joke. Because the shooting in Monterey Park happened in a predominantly Asian community during the celebrations for the Chinese New Year, many wondered if it was a hate crime. Anti-Asian violence has risen dramatically since COVID-19 changed our lives in 2020. There have been reports of people attacking victims in the streets of big blue cities like New York, as well as red and rural. One man in Texas actually followed an Asian family into a store and attacked them with a knife. Get out of America, he yelled, while the six-year-old he slashed in the face bled. We've made a great deal of progress in this country, but obviously we still have a long, long way to go. That voice you heard at the top of this episode is Vern Yip. He is the son of Chinese immigrants. He is gay, and he is a father. The acclaimed interior designer and one of the stars of TLC's Trading Spaces, as well as HGTV Design Star, spoke with me before the mass shooting in Monterey Park, so you won't hear us talk about the attack. But we do spend time talking about the rise in anti-Asian and anti-LGBTQ violence and what he and his husband say to their children about it. It's one thing to witness such hate and bloodshed as an adult, but unfortunately, we now live in a world where we can no longer keep this reality away from our children. Vern shares with us how his family handled these very difficult topics, as well as the pressure he felt growing up as a closeted Chinese kid trying not to disappoint his parents. It's a fascinating conversation, but also a funny one as Vern peels back the curtain on what it was like for him to come out, meet the man of his dreams, and grow his family. There are aspects of this conversation that felt so familiar to me that I asked my son, LZ, who you heard in the previous episode, to come back for a brief conversation about managing your parents' expectations. But first, Vern Yip shares his journey from Hong Kong to the red carpet at the Emmys, including the hilarious moment he realized he was gay. Your story is so interesting because obviously it doesn't begin here. It begins in Hong Kong. So my family uh, came over to the United States from Hong Kong where I was born when I was just two months old. I remember growing up as a 
typical American kid, but with Chinese parents. And those early struggles were really more about trying to figure out how I fit in because I wasn't built like the rest of my peers. I didn't really see see the world through the same lens because of my cultural identity. I, you know, I was never that kid who went through the rebellious phase. My parents sacrificed so much coming to this country. My dad was a biochemist in China. My mother was a child psychiatrist and they moved to Hong Kong. They fled China during the Cultural Revolution when communism took over China. You know, we moved to the U.S. and, you know, I saw how much my parents sacrificed. My dad went from being a biochemist to being a busboy at a restaurant at the very top of a Marriott in Arlington, Virginia. And my mom went from being a child psychiatrist to washing floors at a bank. My parents eventually had businesses and I worked on those in those businesses early on. I was just always trying hard to be a very dutiful son. And in fact, growing up, so many Asian American kids experience this. Your, your parents basically sit you down very early on in life and they say, you have two options. You can be a doctor or you can be a doctor. Totally up to you. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to be a doctor. And uh, because I didn't want to disappoint, you know, I even, you know, was a pre-med undergrad, uh, took the NCATs, spent several years uh, working at the Transmitted and Transfused Viruses Laboratory at the National Institutes of Health on every spring, summer, and winter break, uh, working on asymptomatic HIV and hepatitis C. And every day I would walk into work and I would be in this lab and I would say, you know, the first question on my brain was, why are these walls this horrible shade of yellow? You know, why do we have to endure working <laughs> under this horrible fluorescent lighting? You know, my brain wasn't thinking about what it was supposed to be thinking about, right? So, you know, I mean I'm sorry. That's just I'm just I'm just imagining you walking into the office and and you're supposed to be focused on like, you know, this very, very serious matter. And not the design isn't serious, but to have that thought going through your head concurrently is absolutely hilarious. Yeah, I mean it it, it was like, you know, a big warning sign. It was like, Oh, you're supposed to be working on some pretty important stuff. <laughs> like stuff that's supposed to be saving people's lives and you're worried about the shade of yellow. This is not good. Um, so, you know, when that was a good way for me to first ease out of being the exact picture of who they wanted me to be, being able to sort of say, this is really who I am. I'm not, I'm not somebody who wants to be a doctor and I think I'm going to be a terrible doctor. And so, you know, when I did that, at that point, my dad had left. Uh, my mom pretty much raised me on her own from the time that I was seven. But, you know, at that point, my mom was great about it. She said, you know, that's fine. You know, I just want you to be happy and I want you to embrace who you, you really are. And if that's really what you want to do, then then go do that. But how did you know that about yourself? Were you like constantly like rearranging furniture in the house when your parents weren't home? Like, how did you know? I knew very, very early on. And the thing is, you know, your parents know you better than pretty much anybody, right? My parents knew early on that I was a really creative kid. I showed that very, very early on. In fact, uh, in kindergarten, I was identified as a kid who should be going into a specialized creative track. They wanted to take me out of the normal public school track and put me into like a, an art magnet school. And my parents didn't want that for me. They, you know, they said, oh, it's a, it's a great thing to have as a hobby, but, mm. you know, you need to focus on your academics and focus on being a doctor. And, you know, I showed those signs very, very early on. I was always drawing. It was my favorite thing to do. I, and I was always drawing furniture. I was, you know, helping my mom with the decor in the house. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I designed my own bedroom furniture and she had it made at some point. And wow. So you must've been in torture. You're wrestling with your creative side and trying to, to, to keep that down. And on top of that, you're trying to enter to a field solely to please your parents. Oh man, your coming out was multi-layered. Well, you know, the, the first thing was really admitting that I didn't want to be a doctor. And, you know, I think that sort of set the stage for coming out, you know, later on because I could see that, okay, you know, she just wants me to be happy. And that's a great sign, right? Do you think that's part of the reason why it took you a little bit longer in your estimation to sort of discover 
your sexual orientation because you thought perhaps you were made disappoint your parents? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I put a lot of pressure on myself and I really didn't want to disappoint. I really did not want to disappoint my family. I wanted to make them proud. And, um, and I really had this feeling that if I, you know, I came out as uh, gay that I would disappoint. I didn't come out until much, much later in life, probably later than most people. And in fact, my husband is actually the first man I ever dated or, or kissed or held hands with or anything. Wow, that is so romantic. <laughs> oh my God, he could have screwed it up for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it took me a long time to, to actually embrace my queer identity, to embrace being a gay man, because a lot of reasons. Number one, you know, people forget that we've made huge amounts of progress in this country and in this world. And, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. And by the time I realized that I was gay, you were constantly reinforced with the messaging that this was not okay. You know, this was not acceptable. People have to rewind the clock and think back to how gay men used to be portrayed in the, in the media back then. It was a very specific, very narrow view of who you got to be. And anybody who is part of the community knows that the spectrum of people is just as broad in terms of interest and personalities and goals as it is in the, the straight, you know, heteronormative world, right? It's just as broad. But back then, that's not what was being portrayed. And it was sending, you know, I think really scary messages for those of us who maybe thought we're thinking like we're, you know, I'm gay, but I don't fit into this very narrow stereotype. No, I, I'm with you. I am very much into sports. I've worked at ESPN more than half my career, as a matter of fact. And and like you, you know, I came out later in life, or at least later in comparison to this generation is coming out at. And you know, I can remember seeing a guy, a black man with a basketball, on the cover of this defunct magazine now called Hero Magazine. I don't know if you remember it or not, but it was a queer magazine for men. And it was this black basketball player on there. And I remember thinking to myself, hold up, that isn't me. Who could that be? Because at that <laughs> point, I thought I was the only gay man that was interested in basketball. They played basketball regularly. And it set me on this path to discover, like to your point, that we are everywhere. And it's just that the portrayal of us in the media is what shaped the limitations, not our creativity and abilities. That's absolutely right. You know, I think I knew early on, for example, that, you know, I wanted a family. I always wanted to be a dad. I always wanted to have kids. And so, you know, at the time growing up, and of course now I know this isn't true and we all know that this isn't true because we've gotten much better at representing the broader spectrum of people in the community. But back then it was sort of really portrayed that if you were a gay man, it meant A, you weren't going to have a family. B, you were probably expected to be at a club until the wee hours of the morning dancing on a floor somewhere with your shirt off and see uh, when you weren't at the club you were supposed to be at the gym not at the library and you know like none of those things really like appealed to me <laughs> you know on that you mean i didn't see you at the heretic that one night with your shirt <laughs> off dancing on one of those cubes that wasn't you <laughs> trust me you don't want to see that and i can't dance and so so many reasons why that wouldn't be happening but um <laughs> But, you know, when I did finally come out, number one, I had a great story, meaning I was fully embraced by everybody who mattered in my life. My friends and family were all good with it. And I know that that isn't the case for so many people, uh, unfortunately. But for me, I was lucky enough that that was the case. And I felt this huge pressure uh, lifted off of my shoulders and instantly I, you know it just improved every single aspect of my life getting to be who you really are without kind of having to push something down you know you just forget after so many years of like pushing it down how much of a toll it takes on you how much energy it just sucks from your life mm -hmm. um you know i'm really really so grateful really grateful grateful for all the hard work that people have put in to allow me 
and my husband to have the life that we have. Uh, you know, we get to raise these two beautiful children. We both have our own successful careers. We live in a community that supports us and loves us, and we're surrounded by great people. It's just really not that much more you can ask out of life. No, it's it's absolutely wonderful. And you know, as we were saying offline, um, I worked at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I started off there as a home design writer. So you and and Ty and so many of the initial characters and and stars of Trading Spaces and all those HGTV shows were were like little beacons for us, you know, in terms of inspiration and also just in terms of representation because we were able to see a kaleidoscope of our community and a kaleidoscope of humanity while also really cool designs. Except for that one design I was just telling my producer Trevor about. I don't know if you remember this show or if you've even seen it, but somebody had put some hay on somebody's oh. wall in one of the episodes. Yeah. And I never forgot that because I was like, I would cut them. <laughs> Do you remember that? I remember <laughs> Who did that. That? <laughs> that was that was a designer named Hildy Santo Tomas. Uh Hildy. I have to first say, I want to say this. She is a lovely, <laughs> lovely person. She is a lovely person. <laughs> she is a very talented designer. She was very experimental. And the thing that you have to realize is that, you know, when they cast the designers on that show, they cast us purposefully so that we wouldn't overlap. We wouldn't overlap from a design style standpoint, from a personality standpoint. From a working style standpoint, they wanted a broad cross-section. And, you know, Hildy always just had like a very like sort of different, unique take on that process. And it wasn't me. It wasn't what I would do. But um, but that's why we were both on the show together. You know, they only needed one of me and they only needed one of her. Child, all I know is I saw that hair on the wall and I was like, ooh, this would not be a good episode if I walked in and saw hay glued up on my wall. That's all I'm going to say about that. When you when you think about that time and, and you think about all of the shows and what that energy was, and, and especially in Atlanta at that time, and just to, to pull the curtain back a little bit for the listeners, um, at this time in Atlanta, you're talking about really – Midtown Atlanta, 24-hour gay clubs where you can still dance all night long. We're talking um, a really healthy and vibrant community that was economically empowered, legislatively empowered. Like it was like Atlanta to me was like a gay mecca of the South. And you guys became like these beacons of lights within the midst of all of that. You know, how was that ride for you looking back? And what was the one thing that you took away from and that you still hold on to today? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So Trading Spaces came out at a time when really like television viewing was three broadcast networks, not even four, three broadcast networks. And I think there were like maybe 40 cable channels. I mean, I know that's unfathomable to people today who can like stream from, <laughs> you know, hundreds, if not thousands of options. But Trading Spaces was the first show to come out that really was this confluence of DIY with entertainment. You had shows that were out prior to Trading Spaces that were really showing you how to do things in your home, but the content was really educational. It was not meant to mm -hmm. entertain on any level. And Trading Spaces was the first show to do that. And we started off as a daytime show on TLC and the ratings took off and they moved us to prime time very quickly. And the ratings continued to take off and build. And, you know, you, you got the kind of ratings back then that almost aren't feasible today because people have so many options. But back then, because there were far fewer, you had a lot more eyeballs concentrated on a successful show. And I remember very, very quickly going from thinking, oh, this isn't going to last. You know, we're going to, I'm going to try this out and do this for a couple <laughs> episodes to being on the, you know, red carpet of the Emmys. We were nominated for our first Emmy Award and we were on the red carpet and we were behind the cast. At that time, there was a show on called Alias with um, Jennifer Garner yes, and Jennifer Garner and uh, Bradley Cooper. And That's I remember hard. I remember like, <laughs> you know, we were behind the cast of Alias doing like the media interviews. And before you sit down at the Emmys, they they make you go to the bathroom so that you lessen the chance that you're going to have to get out of your seat. 
And I remember like being at the urinals and like being right next to Bradley Cooper and just thinking, oh my gosh, what is happening? You know, this is like, <laughs> this is a, a different world that we have landed in. And, you know, I'm grateful for that show because it did broaden representation for people. It also made design a lot more accessible to a much broader group of folks. Trading Spaces sort of came along and said, okay, we're going to mix up the model. We're going to show people how to do this affordably and quickly, and maybe they could do this over the weekend. And, you know, that was the part of the show that really spoke to me and that I really, really loved, that really resonated with me because uh, we got to kind of open up the doors for everybody and make design a whole lot more accessible. How did you know your man was into you and not into all of that that you just said? The fame, the stardom, the urinal next to Bradley Cooper, the Emmys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny story. Most people don't know this story. So I think it's probably the first time I'm telling this on any broad scale level. I've already mentioned to you that I had not dated another man before and had really come to terms in my head that yes, I am indeed a gay man, but was very, very nervous about what that next step was going to look like or be. I had only dated women and and always knew that there wasn't there was something that wasn't quite right. It didn't quite fit. I grew up with dogs my whole life and I always wanted dogs, but because I was traveling, shooting trading spaces, you know, so many days of the week, I just didn't feel like, you know, I could get dogs responsibly because dogs aren't house plants. Dogs aren't even goldfish you know <laughs> dogs require interaction and love and as they should a really good friend of mine said look i know you don't feel like you can adopt dogs because of your busy schedule but there's a kill shelter just down the street from you whatever option you have to offer those dogs that you would adopt from a kill shelter is going to be better than their alternative and i thought you know what you're right uh, so I adopted a couple of dogs from the kill shelter and the AJC, that's the Atlanta Journal Constitution, was tipped off by the shelter that I had been in and I was adopting these dogs and reached out and said, hey, would you sit for a picture with those dogs to help promote pet adoption? And I said, sure, but these dogs have been in a shelter for, you know, eight, nine weeks. They need to be bathed and cleaned up before that happens. And so I was driving home. And I saw a big billboard for my husband's company. He owns a dog daycare boarding grooming um, company. He has three locations here in the metro Atlanta area. And I saw a big billboard for it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to pop in and see about taking the dogs from the shelter and into getting groomed before we take this photo to promote pet adoption for the AJC. So I quickly became their number one customer because I was shooting five days a week somewhere else in the country. <laughs> I would drop the dogs off for boarding. And then I would pick the dogs up on Thursday or Friday, and I quickly rose to the ranks of being the number one customer at that store. And then one fourth of July, I love fireworks. You know, my husband owns the company, so he's not working the desk usually. You know, he's he's managing it from a remote office somewhere. But one fourth of July, a lot of folks called in sick who were working at that location, and so he was working the desk. And I walked in and I saw him, and I the thought bubble over my head was, oh my goodness. I am definitely gay. I am so gay. I am gay for this man. <laughs> and I was throwing this big party and I, you know, with fireworks and stuff and, um, and I didn't want the dogs to freak out. So I was boarding them for the, for that purpose. And he was there and I said, Hey, you know, I'm throwing a party. If you, um, are interested, come on by later. And I didn't think that he would show wait, up. Wait, 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 wait. You're trying to tell me this man was so fine. You went from closeted and shy to, yo, dog, I'm throwing a party. You should swing through within five minutes of seeing him. <laughs> you know, first off, I didn't know what team he played for. But I thought either way, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I have I have friends across all spectrums. So I said, come, come to the party. And not thinking that he would come, but he did. After the store closed, he showed up and he happened to be working on a new location at that time uh, and also working on a new home. He had, uh, was building a home. It was still the stages of like just, you know, wood studs, no <laughs> sheetrock, no enclosed walls, nothing. 
And of course, I very quickly volunteered. I was like, you know what? I'm happy to help you. I'm happy to help you with design advice for both the store and your house. Let's do it. Um, and of, and we just really clicked right away. It's unbelievable. And and sometimes, you know, I, I, I really worry about telling this story about, you know, marrying the first guy that you, you date because I know that it is not normal. And I know that most people should kind of see what else is out there and play the field. But we just instantly clicked. It just clicked in such a major way that we moved in together shortly after he completed that house. So we moved in together about like six months later, we moved in together and got married, uh, exchanged vows abroad um, very, very quickly after that. It's been great. I'm so fortunate and I'm so lucky to be able to tell that story the way that I get to tell it. He's still the first face I want to see every morning when I wake up. He is still the last face I want to see every night before I go to bed. He is my best friend. He's my compadre. He's the person that I want to spend time with more than anybody else. Uh, he's the one that I get to co-parent with and to raise these two beautiful kids with and 500 pounds of dog. So I, I'm just very, very fortunate. I'm so incredibly lucky. And it really, you know, we were both looking for the same thing. We were looking for somebody to raise a family with, to have kids with, to build a life with, which, you know, I'm not saying that that's what you should aim for. That's just what I wanted and what he wanted. But I didn't know that that was a possibility. And I was scared that it wasn't. I was scared that my life was going to be largely just childless and dating a bunch of different people because that's oftentimes the story that is told, you know, when it comes to gay men. But it doesn't have to be that way, nor is it that way. There are plenty of, of gay men out there who find their forever person and raise families. So if that's what you want, you can do that too. Absolutely. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. My son's biological, was married to a woman before, and in the divorce, obviously, was co-parenting with her, and so he became my, my barometer. So any guy that I was considering dating seriously, the question was always, do I want this person influencing my child? If I were to not be here, am I okay with my child being in this person's care? And that really saved me from a, like a lot of like really bad relationships, I think, because when I got to know, then there was really no room for me to try to justify hanging on to something that wasn't good for me or wasn't good for my family. If I said no, or even if I hesitated, um, I knew that this was not something serious. My question to you after sharing that is, what was your barometer in terms of how you wanted to start your family? How did you know he was going to be the person to go through that entire journey with you so that you could start a family? Well, we established that very early on that we both were looking to do that, to have children and to raise a Who family. Who brought it up first? Uh, Who brought it you know, up it was first? in our very first real kind of sit down conversation. You know, we were just meeting for, for coffee our first real sit down conversation outside of being at his store wag a lot or, um, you know, being on a site, a work site, but being like in a real sit down situation where we were having a broader conversation, you know, I don't know who brought it up first. I probably did. Um, and I felt very comfortable bringing it up because by that point I knew that our energies were in sync and that we were largely on the same page. And, he had zero hesitation about saying that he had the same goals. That was a huge one for me because if, if he was not 
wanting to start a family still would have been a great catch for somebody, but I would have been the wrong person. You know, it's such a huge part of our lives being family men and raising our children and they're a priority for us, of course. You know, that whole journey of having kids, it's it can happen in so many different ways. And in Georgia at the time, there were very, very few examples of gay men who were raising families. You know, I certainly didn't see any in Atlanta. I don't know about the rest of the state, but I would have thought, you know, if it was happening in Georgia, it probably would have been happening somewhere in the Atlanta metro area. At the time, we kind of explored the different roads and we ended up we ended up going the surrogacy route. You know, I don't mind sharing that. Our children are biologically related to to us and we identified uh, yeah, an egg donor who we both thought, you know, it wasn't important to us that, you know, the egg donor was somebody who was a supermodel or that she, you know, exhibited this incredible list of top-notch characteristics, you know, it was important to us that she was somebody that we could see ourselves dating. You know, we had the fortune of Hmm. being able to see videos instead of like just looking at a piece of paper. And my husband is of German heritage. He's 100% of German heritage, even though his family has been in the U.S. for many generations. And we happened to find an egg donor who was uh, half Chinese and half German. She's somebody who absolutely loves art uh, loves food, loves travel. She had an effervescence about her, and we both thought, you know, I would totally date that girl. Just interesting and vivacious, and and so that's how we got to that point of starting our our family. And it was it was certainly arduous and uh, lots of hills to climb and lots of valleys to get out of. But it like what? Well, you know the the whole the whole process. It doesn't necessarily go smoothly. You know, I think it's probably much smoother than it was 10 years ago, you know, or 12 years ago. Our son's going to be 13. And, you know, the things that we had to figure out from a legal standpoint and, you know, just making sure that when our kids were born, that we were going to be able to claim them as our kids. And, you know, I think it's, it's probably gotten a little bit easier for gay men to go the surrogacy route in the U.S., uh, but at the time, you know, you really had to think of very, very carefully about where your surrogate was based. We were lucky to find an amazing surrogate who was a West Coast based. Um, but just making sure that we were checking all the right boxes and, and taking care of things legally was, I mean, it was scary. It was scary to think that your child could be born and conceivably you could have you no know, claim to your child, your own child. So, you know, there's just a lot of things, a lot of extra steps that we have to go through that heterosexual couple may not have to go through. And you just want to get it right. But, you know, once your child is here, you know, that's, you forget about all of that. It's, um, it's the best ride I've ever been on in my life. I love being a dad. He loves being a dad. Our kids are phenomenal. You know, I tell everybody all the time, you know, of course, we love our kids. We love our kids. We're their parents, but we actually also really like our kids. And that's a, that's a difference. That's a big difference. Yes, um, there is. Yeah. You know, I, I want to spend time with our children. They are cool people. They are fun people. They are good people. They are smart people. They are interesting well, people. So. Well, let's talk about your children because Listen, I just kind of skimmed through your social and they're checking out Tchaikovsky. They have Hamilton. They are <laughs> taking violin lessons. Like you're making sure culture is at the center or at least a very big part of their lives. I'm assuming that was something that was mutual as well when you and your husband were discussing family. Yeah, you know, they really just love to do the things that we love to do, which isn't always the case. You know, I mean, There are times that kids are born and, you know, your kids are born and they have, they come into this world with a certain set of traits, right? Uh, Some of it's Mm -hmm. learned, but a lot of it, they just come into the world with. And, you know, it was important for us to kind of expose the kids all around, you know, they're very, very, they're each different from each other. You know, our son is uh, 12, going to be 13 in January. He does play the violin. Uh, He does love culture, but he really, like, he is a sports guy. And both of our kids play tennis. 
which you know i love tennis my husband loves tennis so we're really lucky that we all were really kind we of have a mutual friend in brian Bahaley, the former atp top 50 player yes i love brian and brian and i really bonded and connected over you know being family guys yeah you know our kids uh our kids are tennis players they both play the violin uh they both speak mandarin and spanish uh, we have traveled with them all over the world. They have been to every continent except for uh, Antarctica, and they are adventurous. How do you know you're not overdoing it in terms of, you know, you want them to have everything you didn't have versus this is what they're naturally into or this is a way to expose them to grow? That's a great question because uh, not only are kids, you know, kids of, you know, two gay men, but, you know, also I have thousands of years of, Chinese culture in me. It's just like, push your kids, push your kids, push your kids. <laughs> you know, every step of the way, you have to say to them, and this is really what I want and what my husband wants and it's what's fair to the kids. You, you have to sort of say, you are not doing this for me at any point. If you are not enjoying this, if you want to stop this, if you want to pursue something else, let's do that. Let's stop that activity and let's start another one. Or Let's figure out what it is that's motivating you. So for example, you know, our daughter very early on had taken some ballet and she was like, I'm not into ballet. I don't like it. And she's, she was so good at it, but we're like, are you sure? She's like, yep, I'm sure. And so we took her out of ballet, but you know, we started to kind of see, you know, in middle school and you're seeing this with your son, I'm sure their personalities really kind of come to the forefront. They really are beginning to figure out who they are and what interests them. And that's what you really want. You want them to feel passionate about what they're pursuing in life. And I know this from experience because I pursued something in life for a long time just to make my parents happy when my real passion really lied in the creative fields. And I don't want that for our kids. I don't want them to be doing things just to make us happy. I want them to be doing things because that's what they really feel excited about and what they're passionate about and how they feel like they're going to contribute to the world because you're going to end up having a much happier life. You're going to be a better person, a kinder person, if you're not feeling hemmed in by expectations. So, you know, our, our big expectation is really pursue it with vigor, whatever it is, pursue it with vigor. And if you're not interested in it, to the point where you want to pursue it with vigor, then let's not do it. Don't do it for us. And so it's really just kind of having, having those open lines of communication. And I learned that just from my childhood, just feeling so scared to be able to step up and say, you know, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to work in the medical field. You know, I don't want to date girls, you know, like I know that <laughs> like from early on. So I don't want the same thing for, for our kids. You know, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times your son was born in January. And, you know, I also happen to know at least the date that was posted, which was January 6th. Yes. Um, a date that obviously has some very negative connotations to it now. Seeing how that occurred, the attack on the Capitol was happening at or around his birthday. Um, were you and your husband forced to kind of engage him in that conversation? Or were you able to kind of keep that away from them? You know, I'm always very careful when I talk about parenting because I realize that there are so many ways to do it. And um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I just and by no means are we are we trying to suggest that, you know, you and I combined know all the right things to do. Oh, no. With raising I, kids. I have made, <laughs> I've made so many mistakes. I'm a terrible example. Um, no, you know, I'm still making them. Yes. Yes. I mean, it happens. We're human. We are very, very plugged in with our kids in terms of world events, in terms of politics, in terms of what's happening culturally in our country. We very much plug them into that. And we watch the news together as a family every single night. There are always lots of questions and we always press pause on on the news and say, okay, let's discuss this. So we we haven't sort of kept them from what's happening in our world we want them to understand we want them to ask questions and so he's very well aware you know he says it all the time he's like man my birthday's always marred by what happened on january 6th and we're like you know bad things have happened on every single day on the calendar and good things have happened on every single day of the calendar we acknowledge 
what happened on January 6th. We talk about what happened on January 6th. You know, they were watching it all go down, unfortunately, you know. Um, but at the same time... Was there time, a party planned? Or was it just a regular day in terms of the family's going to have dinner? Like, what was January 6th, 2021 like? There wasn't a party planned or an activity planned because we were in, you know, we were still kind of in lockdown. We all missed a couple of years of birthday parties for the kids. Everybody in this country did, right? You know, it was just family celebration, birthday cake, you know, that kind of thing. But he has thought about it a lot. You know, it stayed with him that that happened on his birthday. For us, it's really about making sure that we openly discuss it. And we talk about the fact that him being born on that day is a huge plus and a huge bright spot. And anything can happen on any day and it's beyond our control. But what's not beyond our control is how we look at it, how we view it, and how we handle it in our lives. That's within our control. How are they processing some of the other things politically since you do engage them um, in terms of how they know that what's being discussed on television has direct impact on their lives, specifically, you know, the anti-LGBTQ plus bills, um, attacks on transgender families. The Supreme Court is still trying to decide whether or not, you know, it's okay that religion uh, is used as a way to discriminate against queer people. Like all of these conversations are in the media. They're happening and they're impacting directly on his life, on his sister's life and his, his family's life. How do you navigate those conversations right now? We talk about it openly. You know, I, I think it has been one of the huge pluses for our family that we talk about everything that's happening in the world so openly and we entertain the questions and we answer the questions to the best of our ability because it lays a foundation to then have a more uh, involved discussion of the next topic because you already know what preceded right you, you're not starting from zero you already have laid the groundwork and so um it's interesting you know to to have those discussions you know just because uh, gay people, uh, people in the LGBTQIA plus community have gained some significant rights doesn't mean that we're fully viewed equally. You know, there's still a long way to go, but there's still a long way to go for a lot of groups. There's still a long way to go for minority groups, you know, for people of different racial backgrounds. There's still a long way to go for people um, of different socioeconomic backgrounds. There's still a long way to go for women in this country, you know, I mean, it's a process of always trying to stand up for what is right, what you believe to be right, and to be a champion of that. We, we tend to view things as society as this is the job that's happening in Washington. This is what's happening with judges and politicians and people in the legislature and whatever. But really, it starts with you. It starts with you and your efforts and what you do. And it has a ripple effect you know i try if you've gone through my social media you can you can see that i try and and keep that out of my social media content but in our day-to-day -day lives our kids are very engaged they wrote postcards for example to get the vote out um like hundreds of them so they've been part of the process firsthand is what i'm saying it's not just them viewing it on tv and us discussing it at the dinner table, we've made sure that they have been part of the process and that they know that they can be an active part of the process, that voting does matter. However, they're going to vote. It matters to vote. It does have an impact and encouraging others to, to vote has an impact. Standing up for what you think is right has an impact. Respectfully listening to a differing opinion and engaging with that person has an impact. And I think it's Absolutely. much harder to discriminate Absolutely. against somebody when you have a relationship with them when you know who they are as opposed to just viewing them as you know in the abstract you know all of all of that matters and you know we try and really impart that to our kids last question for you okay when they graduate from high school and at the pace that they're going it could be in next year it could be in two years <laughs> um, <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> If they come to you and say, you know what, I don't think I want to go to college, knowing everything about how college is viewed in your upbringing, but also in society as a whole, 
And I ask you this question because I had to process it for myself with my own son because he floated that idea about not going to college. And I had always prided myself on, you know, letting him make his own decision and finding things out. But when he said that, I was like, hold, 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 hold up now. Would you let your kids, you know, let them as much as you can anyway, would you let them skip college? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> I mean, that was like, that was, that was totally like my inside voice coming out. So here's how I feel about that, that topic. I don't think that you have to go to college to have great success in this life and to be a fulfilled person and to contribute to society and to be happy. I don't view that as a requirement. I would like to really strongly encourage our kids to go because no matter what they do with that education, um, I feel like it's going to help broaden their horizons that they will learn things from being in that college experience outside of the classroom even, but just being part of a, a community of people who are pursuing knowledge, you know, in different areas. Um, and I would like that experience for them. Will I force them to do it? No, you can't force them to do it. And I don't want an unhappy child. If that's not really, if they really know that that's not what they want and they want something else, then of course, as long as what they, the alternative is, is something that's productive and that's going to help them grow as a person and develop and all those things, then I'm going to be supportive of that. But I would really love for them to have that broad-based education at the college level, if possible. You know, I just know from my experience, you know, I'm a, an architectural and interior designer, but I have a degree in chemistry. I have a degree in economics. I have an MBA. I have a master's in architecture, you know, having that strong science math background makes me a better designer. We're not the family that spends a lot of money on clothes, for example, or cars or things like that, but we invest in education and we invest in travel. Um, you know, we want them to experience the world and to understand how big and broad it is and to get as educated as they possibly can. So. I would like to say that I'm woke enough to say, yeah, don't go to college. It's cool. Whatever you want. But I'm, I am not quite that woke, unfortunately. Yeah, we're, we're both Gen Xers and our generation, particularly, you know, you sound as if, you know, because you're, you're immigrant background, like you're first generation, right? Student here in America. I was first generation college student in my family. Yeah, there really wasn't a discussion about him not going to college. I just let him think we were actually having one. <laughs> maybe i will evolve for, maybe we'll both evolve at some point but i'm not there yet i'm not there yet either i'm in no rush to get there either Vern, thank <laughs> you so so much for your time i really appreciate it and and honestly like you were one of the inspirations for me as i said as a as a young home design writer and you know just seeing you out there in the sea of all that whiteness in this field that for so many years felt as if it wasn't for people of color. You really made a difference. And I just really am thankful that you shared time with us today. Man, I so appreciate it. And I love everything that you're doing and all the things that you're doing for our community. So thank you for having me on. Wow, I really appreciated Vern talking so much about his experiences as a child of immigrants because we don't often hear that from a queer perspective. But the one thing that did sound pretty universal was like parents' expectations and whether or not, you know, you're letting them down. And I'm just curious. I still have my son LZ here with us. I'm just curious, LZ, did you feel as if I was trying to force my expectations on you? Or do you think I gave you room and space to just kind of be your best self wherever direction you wanted to go in? There was a moment for me, I think in middle school-ish, um, where I got an E on a progress report. Don't know if you remember this. Oh, of course I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you definitely gave me a stern talking to, but it was centered around, you're not doing your best. And I think that was the first time that someone pointed that out to me. I, up until that point, had just kind of skated by and let the record show that was in religious class. So it wasn't, you know, one of the, <laughs> one of the main ones. Um... But uh -uh. it was it wasn't a top 10 hit, but it was still on the charts. Right, right, right. A B-side, if you will. No, but you, you were like, you're not doing your best. And I know that because I was just like you. And I also wasn't doing my best. 
And I'm not going to let you keep trying to skate by without checking you because I know where you can go. That shifted my world. And I think you can speak to this through school and now into my career. I am my biggest critic. I think the expectations that I have for myself far exceed anything that anyone else could have for me. I think you instilled a work ethic in that conversation. And even the little things and big things that I could speak to in terms of negative expectations, I think, derive from the point of you wanting to see me be my best. And I think maybe for you, it's a question of what is my best and what is the best that you maybe think or was designed for me or, you know, what your um, read of my best would be. You know, I don't really know, to be quite honest with you, because I have nothing to compare it to. Mm. All I was really being pushed by, and I think Vern also expressed it as well, this desire to make sure that you maximize this experience, whatever the experience was. And, you know, I definitely understand, you know, Vern as being the child of immigrant parents and having these expectations culturally, you know, as a child who is a first generation college student, I also understand what it's like to feel that pressure of wanting to be something. And I did not want to heap that onto you, but I also didn't want to see you like kind of blow it either. So it was a tricky balance and I would like to think I got it right. Cause you know, you're a responsible member of society, at least as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, you've only seen one side of me, huh? On the next episode of Life Out Loud, we talk to journalist and author Jamel Hill about a pivotal family relationship. It just left me with a deep sense of like abandonment and all those other natural human uh, uh, emotions because um, it made me question the genuineness of our bond. I also asked her about her decision not to have kids. My ovaries were not dancing every time I saw a baby at the airport. That was not happening. I was not <laughs> one of those. And what kind of mother she might be. All jokes aside, if I ever hear a child of mine say Chris Brown better than Michael Jackson, that might be the day <laughs> that they wind up on the, on the street. That's next week on Life Out Loud. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings, Lakia Brown, Brenda Salinas-Baker, LZ Granderson, Cameron Shatavian, and me. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And a big shout out to Ariel Chester, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi. I'm Elsie Granderson. I'm a mom of mine. Just, hey, just eat your pancakes. pancakes. Right. <laughs> <laughs>